Well, I wonder if you've ever known what it's like to be forsaken by someone you loved. I wonder if you know more pointedly what it's like to be forsaken by someone who said that they loved you. Maybe you knew a Romeo who once swept you off your feet, who romanced you with mixtapes. Boys and girls, ask the older folks about that. Maybe they signed off with notes, I love you to the moon and back, you know, cheese like that, only to leave you at the drop of a hat. Maybe you knew a husband who once said with meaning in his eyes, till death does part, but who found it all too easy to walk away. Maybe you knew a friend who once faithfully walked with you through a million ups and downs, only to stride on without you and leave you behind, or with an embrace leave a dagger in your back. Maybe you knew a parent who tucked you into bed and kissed you goodnight only to reverse down the driveway and never come back. Often those who have said that they loved us hurt us by forgetting and forsaking us. Can that be said of God? Ever? The Bible says, without question, that God loves his people. He calls us his children and declares the infinite and eternal nature of his love towards us. He loves us deeply. You can't read the Bible honestly and not come to that conclusion. But sometimes life is hard and questions arise and we say things like or ask things like, why is this happening? Or we prefix questions like that with, if God really loves me, why is he not making this go away? Does he not love me? Has he forgotten me? Has God forsaken me? Have you ever wondered that? Well, God's people had back then in the time of Babylonian exile. You see that if you look with me at verse 14, Zion, which is another name for, if you like, the city of God and is basically an all-round term for the people of God. It's their identity as God's chosen people. The Lord has forsaken me, they said. The Lord has forgotten me. It's a big thing to say, isn't it? What has made them draw that conclusion or even ask that question? Well, the Babylonians came. That's what happened. God said that they would, of course. When they came, they turned Zion, that city, upside down. They carted off into captivity those who might be of use and killed those who wouldn't be. They flattened the house of God, the temple. They tore down the city of walls, leaving it utterly vulnerable. And honestly, if they made a movie about it, they would have to classify it as an 18 just for the violence alone. Now, from the darkest pit and under a cloudy sky, God's people then in verse 14 say, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Despite the promises that he has made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to Solomon, actually all the way throughout their history, they say, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. 
Now, I have to say, in one sense, we find their complaint understandable. The situation back then, I think, was utterly horrific. We might even just express some kind of appreciation or admiration for their honesty before God. We do that. But think for a second about the context in which they claim forsakenness, even the immediate context of Isaiah 49. We were looking at this last week. Already in Isaiah 49, God has just said, I am sending you my servant to bring you back to me. And not only you, little Israel, it's going to be such a small thing for my servant just to restore you. He is going to be a light to the Gentiles. Unnumbered people from every people group across the world are going to be brought to the city by my servant. In other words, underscoring Abraham's promise is not lost and buried in ashes. It's going to come true still, despite how it looks. I'm going to free you from your oppressors. I personally am going to lead you and comfort you. And heaven and earth and everything in between will utterly explode in joyous applause and praise to the Almighty God for everything that I am going to do. And you're just waiting at this point in verse 14 for this. Yes! Come on! Let's do it! But what you get from Israel is more of a... Yeah, but... Yeah, but... It's fascinating. It's like you've just said to your kids, I guess we've got a really special surprise for you. You know, in the background you're thinking, I've saved up an awful lot of money for this. And we're, we've planned this for ages. Kids, we're going to take you to Disney. You're reading their faces. You're watching closely. And one of them says, can we not just go swimming? <laughs> like that's the kind of anticlimax that we, that we should feel. I think I'd rather just stay in and watch a DVD. You're like, yeah, come on. You're really not grasping what's being promised here. God's people will just say, I kind of, well, God is declaring in bold italics, underlined that his people are loved, and they reply, I'm just not sure. Even in relation to all that stuff you've just said, like, can you really do that? I'm not sure. Now, what we have in Isaiah 49, 14 to chapter 50, verse 3 is God's response to those who feel forsaken and forgotten by God, by the God who said to them, I love you. And it's also a gentle rebuke for those who don't take God at his word when he says to them, honestly, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And I think as we walk through this text, I think you'll be helped to follow this passage by understanding the flow of the text. Can I have the diagram on the screen, please? Take a look at this diagram. This really, for us, illustrates the emotional flow of this passage. Basically, what you have the majority of the time is God speaking, but it's, it's kind of interjected by different things that Zion or God's people say. So you've got God's people saying, oh, the Lord has forsaken and forgotten me. And the God's, God takes them up to this point where he says, I've not forgotten you. You're so loved. And then they're like, oh, but I'm so bereaved. There's never any hope for me. And God builds up again and answers them and says, you're going to be restored. And then they just go, oh, no, but I'm captive by these really fierce and ugly 
people. How am I going to escape from this? And God says, don't worry, I'm strong. Stronger than any of your enemies. And I am going to free you. And then they're just like, oh, hang on a minute. You divorced me. You sent me away. And God says, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. This isn't rejection. This is discipline. And you're coming back. You with me? Good. Right. Two main points that's going to cover all of that. Uh, here's the outline if you're taking notes. One, I have not forgotten you, verses 14 to 20. Two, I have not forsaken you, verses 21 to 53. Number one, I have not forgotten you. Verse 14, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. God responds immediately by saying, I can never forget you. And he gives us three quickfire images to explain why he couldn't. A mother and baby, a tattoo, and walls. As for the mother and babies, God likens his love for his people and his attentiveness toward them like a breastfeeding mum. He's like the mum, caring for her child, but more than just caring for her child in general, in the very moment of the child as it is feeding at her breast. Feeding and nourishing this child with unspeakable levels of love. Mums, can you imagine forgetting your children, especially when they're feeding? You can't possibly forget that they're there, can you? I mean, you don't just get up and start walking around and hear, what, what was that, you know? No, you don't forget because you're completely and you're constantly aware of the fact that, no, you're having to sit down for quite a long time just to feed this baby and it's going to take a bit of time and actually it's not that comfy, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to stop there um, just in case. Uh, but no, you're constantly looking down in amazement and so you should. I mean, this is one of the most... You know, when God is trying to depict his level of affection for his people, he chooses, selects carefully what has to be the most intimate of all relationships within humanity. I love my children and I'm vitally, vital, how can I describe this, in relationship with them. I love them so much. But yet what mothers share with their children is an incredible bond, an incredible thing. And God says to his people, you're like my children feeding on me. I could not possibly forget you. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, that he says, see, I can't forget you. You're, you're like a baby at my breast. And then he says, you're like a tattoo on my hands. I, it, you're engraving on my hands. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, men, no doubt you struggled with that last illustration. Uh, you struggle with the idea of breastfeeding, but not with tattoos. Okay? Um, I dare say that even if you don't have one, men, you've probably thought about getting one, haven't you? You know, and you don't tell anyone because you're not really sure whether or not it's the right thing to do. But uh, you've, you've thought about getting one. Uh, and why? Well, uh, people want to remember stuff. They want to mark something indelibly on their skin, something that means so much to them. Well, what God's saying here is that he's, gonna, he, he's basically writing their name on his hands so that he can remember all the time. And that so even at times he can show them and say, see, I love you. I've not forgotten you. You're like a baby at my breast. You're like a tattoo on my hand. And I'm the one that has indelibly etched your name on my hands. I engraved it myself. It's not going to tattoo anyone else's name over it. Not even going to cover it up with a long sleeve. Saying, I couldn't forget you. I love you so much, I could not forget you. And then he talks about the walls at the verse 16b. 
He's basically saying your walls serve as a constant reminder. Now, Zion's walls at this time, remember, are an utter ruin. They're always, and what God is saying is that they are always before my eyes. I can't take my eyes off them. Uh, This is the city where God basically attached his reputation to it. It's in ruins. God said this to his people in Exodus when they were being brought out up of Egypt, that he was saying, the people of the world, the nations around, all the tribes and everyone else will know that I am the Lord when they see you worship and adore me. As they look at you, they will see me. That's why he gave them their law. But Zion is in ruins. It's in tatters. In a sense, this illustration tells us one of two things, or maybe both, that God cares about the vulnerability of the city. Actually, the wall is being broken down. It's a, it's a visible motif in Scripture of brokenness. You know, Proverbs says, a, a, a man without self-control is like a city without walls. You're vulnerable. You're going to be ransacked with anything and everything. It's just one of, I think it might be the same picture here. Or it could be that God's like an architect looking over the blueprints of his salvation plan. Yeah. We've leveled the place. Time to rebuild. And we're going to rebuild. And they would. So in all of this, Zion is saying, God has forgotten me. God says, I've not forgotten you. I love you. I have a future in store for you. Now look with me at verses 17 and 18. It says, lift up your eyes and look around. Oh, sorry, 17. Your children hasten back. And those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather around and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you'll wear them as ornaments. You'll put them on like a bride. So God says, I've not forgotten you. I'm always remembering you. And I'm securing your future. You're not going to be without children. There are going to be lots of children come your way. In fact, as he goes on to say in verses 19 and 20, there are going to be so many children. You're going to love the fact that there are children there. They're going to be like jewelry around your neck. You know, you're thinking that God has forgotten you. You've got no hope and no future. But these people, these children are going to come back to you and you're going to wear them like your, your bling. You know, you're going to put them out like you're going out somewhere. You're going to feel like, man, I really look quite nice with these, don't I? You know, and you're going to, you're going to feel when your children are gathered around you like a bride on her wedding day. I, yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea what that looks like, what that feels like. But I hear that it's a great thing. It's the dream day. And yes, God says... Even though you've been ruined, once ruined, I'm going to give you so many children. I'm going to give you such a future that there will hardly be enough room for them. They're going to need, you're going to need to build an extension. You're going to need to build an extension. In fact, the kids are going to be saying, I want my own room. You know, because there are so many of them, they're all piled up, 20 of them in one room, whatever. But then the town planners better get ready to tarmac the green belt as well because we're going to need a citywide expansion plan. That's how big God's future is for these people who are saying, God has forgotten me. God's forsaken me. Oh, I'm, I'm, that's it. It's all over. All over. What do you make of that? We're not, of course, in any kind of situation like they are. 
we can find ourselves in hard times. We're not being ransacked and carried off into slavery. But we experience difficult times and hard times where we may turn around and say, do you know what? Why is God not taking this away? If God loved me, surely he would. I think the meaning in this text is quite simple for us, really. In relation to God's promises to us, I suppose in the corporate sense of what God is doing in the world, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth so that he might be glorified. He's in a sense taking us on two journeys, an external journey and an internal journey. The external journey is of the gospel going to the ends of the earth and the internal journey, if you like, of us growing in Christ-likeness. And we wonder, well, look how many people in this city aren't saved. My goodness, how are we going to reach this many people? How many countless thousands and millions of people in the world, how are we going to reach them? I just don't see how this plan of God to reach the nations is going to happen. I don't even see how it's going to happen here in reaching the city. And there aren't a few of us here today. Or maybe we struggle personally. Different things seem to derail us, whether it's broken relationships, sin, guilt, and shame. All sorts of suffering and difficulty, the way people treat us. Illness, sudden diagnoses. All makes life very hard. Has God forgotten and forsaken us? God loves you dearly, more than you could imagine. And the one who loves you declares it not from the other side of the bed, not in cards, not with words devoid of meaning. He declares his love for you from a cross. And his blood paints a picture of love that you can see. A love that you can trust. I love that the Bible says God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I know that many of us are suffering. I know many of us will suffer. But those hard times are not the occasion for doubting God's love for us. But the occasion for proving it. And leaning in on it. Knowing that in actual fact... That is the only reliable thing that we might have in this universe. So do we take him at his word when he declares his love for us? That we're not forgotten. That we, as Revelation also says, are engraven as those who have trusted him through Christ are engraven on his hands. We have to take him at his word. Even in relation to mission, the corporate call to take the, the gospel out locally and globally. Do we just say, oh, I, don't know, I don't know how that's going to happen. I just don't. Well, everything the Bible says about God's relationship with his children declares, I love you so much, I'm not going anywhere. And that's why Jesus, even with his last words to his disciples, says, and surely I am with you 
What's the word? What's the word? Temporarily? Always. To the very end of the age. Oh, let it sink in, brothers and sisters. Take him at his word. No matter what you're going through just now, he's not forsaken you. He's not forgotten you. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. I wonder what you lean on in hard times. I dare say everything that you lean on, no matter how stable it might seem to you, is nowhere near as stable as the love of God. And God has promised to extend the same care, the same transfixed focus on you and your life when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. As we'll see a little later on in this text, the thing that bars your relationship with him is sin. If you've never explored that before, we'd love to talk to you about that to try and explain it. But that is what keeps us apart. But he has paved the way for you to come to him like the children of the nations coming to Zion. He's built motorways for you through the cross of Christ to make it as easy as, and as fast as possible for you to accept the gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Do that. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Well, to God's people, God says, you are so loved and you have a future. We're so thrilled at that, aren't we? And yet in verse 21, what do we read? How do God's people respond? Well, then you will say in your heart, who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? Oh, I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? Wow, what a picture of forsakenness that, that is, isn't it? I mean, have you not just heard a single word that the Lord God has said? Bereaved, no husband to have children with, barren, no working womb, exiled, no opportunity to do that anyway because you're in slavery, rejected. Well, I think there's a quiet accusation in there. I'm in this situation because of you, Lord. So they're saying every avenue for the future is blocked off. I just can't see how you're going to pull this off. I still think I'm forsaken. And here's God's answer to this cry. I've not forsaken you, he says. This is point two. I've not forsaken you. He says, you are going to be restored. Look at with me, look with me at verse 22. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon the nations. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. Kings will be your foster fathers. Queens, your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. See, he's just said, you're going to have children. They're like, I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't even have a home. You know, I'm too old. How is this going to work? And God says, you'll have children. And let me tell you how. They are going to be carried to you. They're going to be brought to you in the arms and on the hips of the nations. In fact, kings and queens, the rulers of this world, even people who would be your oppressors, will be your foster parents. Which is starting to give us the indication that actually this might not quite be through the bloodline, if you like. Children born of natural descent in relation to Abraham and his promise. No, those who are grafted in. People who are adopted into the family of God, grafted into the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the progeny, the future of God's people will not rest with Israel alone. It will rest with those who come to faith through Jesus Christ. This is how we become the children of God. Which makes us see, actually, that this, this, this return, if you like, is not just a prefiguring of what's going to happen when Israel first returns after the Babylonian exile, when Cyrus says, okay, everybody go back, and you see the likes of Ezra and Nehemiah coming back, and they're like, man, this place is a dump. We need to spend a lot of time rebuilding this. No, this is bigger. Only 42,000 returned at that time. That's, that's not what we see in here. And those were Jews who returned. This is big. This is, this is global. This is huge. To the point that even he's, God is saying, even the people who've subjected you to difficulty, rejected you and oppressed you, they're going to bring children. You're going to see people, children brought in from all these different nations, and even the people who will bring them will be subservient to me, the Lord says. They will profess that there is only one Lord in this universe, and it's me, he will say. In fact, they will bow so low that they will be licking dust. You can't get any lower. They'll be so humble, so subservient. Now, when? When is the big question. We want to know when this is going to happen. The Lord says, when I raise my banner. Now, when banners, banners are flags, of course. Whenever they were raised in ancient times, they were often used in, in wars. You sometimes see regimental colors nowadays, regimental flags at the, start, at the uh, beginning of processions and parades. Well, God is going to say, I'm going to raise up my banner, and that's going to be the signal. And when my banner is lifted up, that's when the nations will start to come. They'll, that's when the children will start to be gathered in. So it serves as a signal. And God says, when I give the signal, when I raise my banner, that's when. The big question then, of course, is what's the signal we're looking for? What does the banner look like? Well, the idea of a banner raised by God emerges quite often in Isaiah, actually. I don't know if you've noticed that already. But even it's mentioned four times as a thing that calls God's people home. And what we find is that that banner is a person. You see that in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 to 16. Here's one section of that passage. In that day, so it's talking about the same day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. So when that banner is lifted up, nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. He's the banner to call them home. Who is this banner that's lifted up? That when he comes and is lifted up, draws the nations to himself? John 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John, all the way up to this point, it's been the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The clock's ticking, but the hour has not yet come. Now that the Greeks, aha, nations, non-Jewish Gentile nations, now that they want to come, now is the hour. Something big's happening. Now my soul is troubled. This is not going to be easy for Jesus. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. There's the defeat of the enemies. The bigger oppressors than Babylon. And when I am lifted up, there's the banner, from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The banner is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And when he's lifted up on the cross, the children will gather to him, the children of the nations. And yes, then we will know that as we look to that display of love, the costly love of Christ's death on the cross, then we will know that he is the Lord and that those who hope in him, who gather to him as their children, will not be disappointed. Will not be disappointed. Not mulling over your forsakenness or thinking this is rubbish. You'll not be disappointed. Now's the time for joy, surely. Time to join in all creation and stand up and clap our hands. Not quite. How do you take God's people's response in verse 24? Oh, really? You know, can the plunder be taken? You were up here. You were like, come on. You've just gone right down to the bottom again. You're like, oh, come on. But look at verse 25 to 26 where God is reassuring them again despite their objection, despite their unbelief, you will be free. It is going to happen. 25 and 26. Where is it? I've lost it. Over the page. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save and then he goes on to talk about judgment on those who are oppressors and says, then all, so he said, then you will know a minute ago. Now he says, then all mankind, the whole world will know that I, the Lord, am your savior, redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. In essence, he's saying, the Lord is saying, you will be free. This captivity is not gonna last a long time. Conquering forces can always be overcome by a superior power. And guess what the Lord says I'm stronger than anything. <laughs> stronger than anything. Stronger than the fiercest of foes. I contend with those who contend with you if God is for us who can be against us, right? God says he will do this for his people and fight to free us from Satan's sin and death, the fiercest of our enemies. And as he does that, again through Jesus' death on the cross, all mankind will know that I, the Lord, he says, I'm your savior, redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Now, I'm rushing to finish this. God doesn't give his people a chance to respond to this. He keeps on speaking. He's saying, you're not forgotten. You're not forsaken. You are loved. You'll be restored. You'll be free. But be careful what you say. The passage ends on a gentle rebuke here. With what God goes on to say here, it assumes that they're saying, we're, all, we're in exile here because you have forsaken us. You've, you've forgotten us, God. It's kind of verging on accusation. It's not just an expression of their emotion here. 
There's unbelief in it. And God is saying in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 50, before he gets on to the next servant song to talk about Jesus again. Let's remember why this exile is taking place, Zion. I haven't forsaken you, but you have forsaken me. This is discipline, he's saying. You're being disciplined, and you need to understand that. Now, it seems that God's people had the idea that God had divorced them or sold them into slavery because of unfaithfulness on his part, but that, that his word wasn't worth anything. But God says, show me the certificate of divorce. Yeah, you're not going to find one because I haven't divorced you. This is discipline. I haven't divorced you. And then he said to what? I mean, who on earth does the Lord God owe anything to that he would have to sell off his children which is what they sometimes did back then. If they had a huge debt, they'd be like, okay, here's a child to work for you for a certain number of years, and then I can get them back. God said, I don't owe anybody anything that I had to sell you off. No, because of your sins you were sold, because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. And when I came, here's why. When I came to you, there was no one. People are blaming God for this situation. We all do that. We started in the garden when God, Adam said to God, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. Well, he blames God and the wife. But God says it's because of your sins. No one listened when I sent the prophets and the place seemed empty even it was pop- when it was populated. People hid just like Adam and Eve did in the garden when their sin was exposed. And he's saying the reason why you are where you are is ultimately because you, you forsook me, the one true God, and ran after idols. That's the explanation that Isaiah gives. That's the warning that God gave when he delivered his law. And the Lord says that he is disciplining them and he's doing it because he loves them. It won't be the end of them. We've already seen that, but he's doing it. And Hebrews 12 says something similar to us. We don't have time to go into the depths of it just now, but Hebrews says that we're disciplined. We're disciplined because we're loved. But the call for each and every one of us who might think, what is God up to? This, you know, in personal life, we feel forsaken and forgotten in relation to all the plans that God has to multiply his people across the whole earth. I just don't know how that can be. I mean, we seem so inept. The call is to have faith. To have faith in those promises that God has given us in his word. To take him at his word, even when it seems hardest. Both in the outward journey of the gospel to the ends of the earth and the inner journey of the soul toward Christ's likeness, whether it's mission or growth. Trusting him is what matters. You are not forsaken. And you are not forsaken if you trust in Christ. Because there is only one child of God who has ever been forsaken by God, and it was his own son. When he died on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became sin for us on the cross, as Isaiah will say, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And as he paid the price for our sin, no word came from heaven to remind him that he was God's son and that he was greatly loved, as it had done before. 
No dove came down to assure him of the Spirit's presence. No angel came to strengthen him as they had in the desert. No redeemed sinner bowed to thank him. He was truly forsaken. To display God's wonderful love. To be the banner who, when lifted up, would draw all people to himself. So brothers and sisters, the call for those who love Jesus and who believe the word that is spoken of the cross, the call of us in our difficulty and our trials or in relation to mission and God's promises and Christ-likeness and what he calls us to, to be conformed to, we must take God at his word and realize that even if we found it really hard or something seems to be tripping us up along the way. He's faithful towards us. He is so faithful to us. He loves us dearly. And if you're here tonight, today and you're not a Christian, you need to know that you are loved. There is a love that is available for you that is greater than you ever imagined through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can come to know that love by looking to the crucified Savior, the Redeemer, that means rescuer, who paid the price for your salvation with his own life, with his own blood, that you might be one of those children gathered in, shouting for joy, believing the Lord Jesus today. Those who hope in him will not be disappointed. Let's pray.